Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the George Sanders Show Golden Bear Berlin Film Festival uh, Spectacular. Uh, we're coming to you a few days late. Uh, Sean and I were both uh, knocked out by a couple of illnesses. Um, we're both feeling a little better, though. Sean, Sean will be sniffling and sneezing probably throughout the episode, but uh, if you've listened to the show before, that's nothing new. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the coughing attacks are gone for me, so I think I think we're okay. Um, we're talking about two films this week, both former uh, Golden Bear winners at that festival. That's pl- that the festival is going on right now. I think I should say that's why we're talking about it. That's why we have this theme: is the Berlin Film Festival's running uh, all this week? I think uh, is that correct, Sean? Yeah, I think it goes through the fifteenth. Yeah. Um, so we we picked two films that previously won. Uh, the prestigious honor of Golden Bear, and we're talking about Alphaville from Jean-Luc Godard, 1965, which also ties in with our whole 2015 is the 1965 year, uh, which you'll hear about more uh, later in the show. And then we are uh, talking about A Separation, um, recent film from 2011, um, from director Asghar Fahardi. And uh, Jean-Luc Godard is going to be our person of the week, and we're going to pick our Cinema Central Golden Bear winner. Uh, we also have some news this week, um, and I, we, we're jam-packed, and we're going to listen to some Atari Teenage Riot. I'm really excited about it. Um, so, anyway, uh, do you have anything to say, Sean, before we, we move on? No. Good. Here's a clip from Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville. C'était ma première nuit à Alphaville. Il me semblait déjà qu'une longue suite de siècles l'avait précédé. Pourquoi les gens ont l'air tristes et sombres Vous posez trop de questions, monsieur Diot. Quelque chose ne tournait pas rond dans la capitale de cette galaxie. Qu'est-ce qu'ils ont fait Ils ont été condamnés. C'est le professeur von Braun qui a organisé tout ça. Nous ne savons rien. Vous menacez la sécurité de Dalfrémir. Je ne trahirai jamais les pays extérieurs. Dès que je suis avec vous, j'ai peur. Vous avez peur de quoi Les hommes de votre espèce n'existeront bientôt plus. Vous allez devenir quelque chose de pire que la mort. Vous allez devenir une légende, monsieur Benikos. So Alphaville, A Strange Adventure of Lemmy Caution, is Jean-Luc Godard's science fiction film noir. Uh, It is mostly famous for using actual locations in Paris and no special effects uh, to create a futuristic sci-fi feel while not uh, actually building anything new. Um, Its plot is kind of hard to follow. It's basically a, a film noir with Eddie Constantine playing uh, Lemmy Caution, who was a kind of a, a private eye, secret agent kind of guy that he played in a number of films before this and never again after, thanks to uh, thanks to Alphaville. Uh, he goes to uh, this this futuristic city from the Outlands with a, a three-part mission. He has to find 
another secret agent who's gone missing. He has to kill uh, Professor Von Braun, who has invented Alphaville. And then he has to destroy Alpha 60, the computer that runs Alphaville. And he does all of those things and also falls in love with Anna Karina. And that's the movie. And she may or may not be like a robot. Uh, yeah, she's supposedly the daughter of Professor Von Braun, whose uh, real name is Leonard Nosferatu. Because, yeah. wow, because of course it is. That now? That's like the greatest <laughs> part of the movie. I love that. Yeah. Oh. Nosferatu, you know? Yeah, so this this was actually the first Jean-Luc Godard movie I ever saw. Uh, when, <laughs> I, when I was working at the video store in the mid-1990s, uh, we used to sell the used VHS tapes that they were just clearing out of the, the library. And, of course, they were clearing out Alphaville because nobody ever bought it, so or nobody ever rented it. So I bought it for like a dollar and watched it. And uh, really, really liked it and, and did not understand it at all. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times since then. I still really, really like it. And I still don't really understand it at all. So this was your first time watching it. Uh, do you, would you agree with those two responses? <laughs> uh, I liked it. Um, I didn't love it. Like, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that Godard was doing in this period, I absolutely adore and uh, we can get to more of that later when we talk about him in, in general. Um, but I like this. Um, and I think I, I mean, yeah, it's I, like I couldn't describe moment to moment what's going on in this movie. But I think all you need to know really is that, like you said, it's a science fiction film noir, um, you know, d- directed by Jean-Luc Godard. So it's got, you know, all of those kind of, you know, revolutionary kind of new wave uh techniques that he uses you know throughout his his 60s stuff um you know some great i mean oh there's some great camera work here um and there aren't special effects like you said but he does some really cool things like near the end a couple of times he uh makes the image negative and so everything's you know flipped on its head um so there's really cool visual stuff um and anna karina is like just otherworldly um not just because she may be an alien or a robot but because she's just like the most beautiful thing i've ever seen in this movie um so i think you know i don't think you need to know you know the plot you kind of just like dip into the world that he's created and i think as you said yeah it's it's kind of a mix of of a lot of kind of dystopian stuff that you're already familiar with like like 1984 or uh Brave New World. Like, there's there's not really a whole lot that's new in terms of content. It's like there's a computer running the world, and it makes people automatons, and it doesn't understand poetry. Or love. Or love. Yeah. Because, you know, the real Alphaville is love, or something. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's really funny. Yeah, it is. I uh, I love the scene where Constantine first checks into his hotel where he's staying, mm-hmm. and um, there are these women that that are programmed some way or another. Um, and you know, they, what do they call themselves? Uh, they're seductress. seductress. Yeah, level third level seductress or whatever. Um, but they're all blank faced, kind of, and they and they you know join him in his room and. Um, 
but anyway, then there turns out to be a shootout because someone's trying to get him. But it is like so clunkily done, like intentionally so. It's you know, it's yeah. not an action scene. It's 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 more of just a shambling kind of uh, well, bit it's, of chaos. It's it's completely matter of fact. Like, of course, a guy is just going to burst into the room and start trying to kill him, and of right. course, he's just going to run around in a circle and then shoot the guy. Right. Because that, so, yeah, that, that, that's his life, and, and that is to be expected. It's what he does. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that stuff is, is great and hilarious. And um, and then, yeah, like the names, uh, you know, like we said, Nosferatu. And uh, what's what's his uh, pseudonym? Ivan? Ivan Johnson. Ivan Johnson. That's like such a great pseudonym <laughs> for a private eye pretending to be a journalist. Yeah, <laughs> working for, I- for Figaro Pravda. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's great stuff like that in here. Yeah, uh, uh, I love the the soundtrack. Uh, there, there's all of these uh, these noises, these kind of computerized noises that are just constantly interrupting everything, and and they're really irritating. And it's like the 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 sonic version of of uh, the digital noise that that kind of dominates the future like you, you keep hearing these beeps and I'm like my god with the beeps but that's entirely intentional it's supposed to be obnoxious oh yeah absolutely it's provocative yeah uh and like uh, every every time he uh they walk by uh, a door in like the big office building where the computer is housed like the voices uh occupe 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 <laughs> and it, yeah I think that's hilarious. Yeah, and well, and like you said, he really—I mean, it is quite a, an achievement to, as you said, create a very alien kind of futuristic uh, world in a, in a movie where he doesn't have access to, you know, sets or costumes, you know, or special effects or anything like that, but. He he really does. I mean, through the dialogue and through, um, you know, very minimal things like the numbers that are, you know, stamped on each woman uh, in various places on their bodies. Um, and then through stuff like the soundtrack, as you said, uh, there, there's the, you know, the Alphaville, the voice, the very deep uh you know, I can't even do it. I, I It's like I a, cold, he, I he, got, he got somebody it. who had... Uh who spoke through a, a, a voice box because they like had their larynx removed or something. Yeah. It's like proto pre Darth Vader-y, you know, yeah. ominous kind of man machine kind of thing. Um, and, and all of that stuff, all those elements together, um, did, I mean, managed to make this movie really feel like a science fiction film. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's such a Godard film. Like you, there's very little difference, I think, between between this and something like Goodbye to to Language, which oh, was so his similar. recent film. It, I mean, it's got the the kind of the weird voiceover that may or may not have anything to do with the the so called plot of the film. There's lots of uh, kind of digressive aphorisms that may or may not make sense, or may or may not be intended as jokes. Um, I really think that that. Uh, that Godard's humor is is underrated. Like like people, maybe we'll talk about this more when we talk about them him in the the person of the week section. But but people take him so seriously, and I don't know that he takes himself as seriously as I don't think so at all. Everyone else I, does. Yeah, 
I, let's get back to that. I do want to talk about that because I, yeah, I've got, especially in terms of goodbye to language, which um, we, we can talk about more in depth. Um, but, but uh, yeah, this movie to me, of, of all the Godards that I've seen, um, and everything I've seen is pretty much pre 68 for the yeah. most part. Um, this one seems the most uh, comparable in terms of style and, and all of those kind of preoccupations as goodbye to language. Like, um, yeah, he's kind of moving. He, he, he works, he worked so much in this, in this period, the, the 60 to, to 68 period. He, he was, he was making so many films. Um, and he was, was moving so, so quickly from a, a more kind of traditional narrative focus in like breathless or, uh, like Band a woman, a woman to a woman, a woman is a woman to, to the, yeah, to the more, uh, uh, essayistic form of, of something like two or three things I know about her or, or like masculine feminine, um, which would kind of dominate his, his post 68 films. Um, Alpha, Alphaville is like a midway point. Like, like Pierre Lefeau is, is, uh, Pierre Lefeau, Pierre Lefeau. Pierre Lefeau is the, is the other film he, he released in 1965. And that is, that is much more on the kind of traditional narrative, um, side of things um it's still it's still a guitar film it's it's still it's still got a lot of weirdness in it but (laughs) it has like a a a, a, uh it's not it's not as alien as alphaville i don't think yeah Uh, yeah this i mean like they're both they're both like middle midpoint films yeah um what i what is the through line for some of this stuff. Like, uh, you know, there's the famous, uh, kind of tracking shot in breathless that -hmm. was done in the lobby. Um, where I think he was filming it himself, like in a wheelchair or something as someone pushed him through, um, this lobby. And, uh, it's kind of echoed here in Alphaville. Um, there's, there's two shots that happen involving an elevator in the hotel, where the camera follows uh, Constantine through the lobby as he checks into his hotel, uh, goes over, you know, across the room to the elevator, and uh, it's a glass elevator, and he goes up, and the camera we see goes, not it doesn't join him in the elevator, but it goes into an elevator, you know, next to him and goes up with him, and uh, it's really cool. And then it gets out when he gets out and follows him down the hallway, and then later when they redo it when he's leaving and he's going down. Uh, the elevator that the camera's in doesn't uh, leave right away. I don't know if it was like a malfunction or they just didn't hit the button in time or something like that, but his uh, his elevator goes down first and the camera just kind of follows this the top of the elevator. Um, anyway, it's, 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 you know, when people talk about the, the new wave, there are these things that are done uh, that are just so exhilarating filmmaking. Like you just get like energized by the style and the, and the kind of, just the new way of, of doing things and stuff like that yeah, the, is, uh, is all over this thing. The, the cinematographer, uh, Raul Qatar, who, who shot uh, most of Godard's films in this period and a lot of other uh, uh, of the, uh, the really terrific uh, new wave stuff, um, has, has talked about that elevator shot. And uh, apparently it, it took them a really long time to get that first shot because the elevators were old and they couldn't get them to, to sync up going up at the same time. Uh, so uh, I, I get, I get the feeling that with the second shot, 
and they it, were like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, exactly. And, and by that point in the film, like you're, you're kind of tired and you kind of feel like the camera is just tired and they're like, you know, I just don't want to do this anymore. It's just, we'll just cut. That's funny. Cause that's exactly the feeling that I got from it when they did it. I was like, well, the first one seemed like it was a lot of work. The second yeah. one, they were just like, well, well, this this is good enough, right? But, and it's kind of like mirroring the the progression of the detective in his investigation. Like you you know you're just as you're uncovering things, you're getting more and more more tired and more cranky, and you just you just don't want to deal with this nonsense anymore. You just want to blow up the fucking computer and and go away with the pretty girl. Well, and also it's like the it's that that second shot is in in certain respects the more like invigorating like punk rock version you know mm -hmm. where it's where it 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 kind of um goes event goes against like conventional um filmmaking technique like mm -hmm. why would why would you why would you have the conversation keep going but have the camera be focused on the top of an elevator instead of the two people talking or something like that yeah. and so when that happens it's really really cool um yeah there's uh uh the the weirdest thing I think the I think the weirdest thing, and you can pick your weirdest thing in the film, but the weirdest thing uh, that really struck me this time was the the execution scene, where he's uh, I think he's talking to von Braun, or maybe it's just yeah. like a higher up, no, he's and, and they're they're going through a, through a, and like a tour of the uh, the Alpha sixty building, and and there's this this room where there are these uh, condemned prisoners, and they're like men that are being condemned to to for whatever reason and they're they're stood up on the edge of a pool and they get they get shot at and they dive in the pool and then these women dive in the pool after them and like eat them yeah <laughs> which is such a great way to like kill somebody <laughs> to oh, shoot them wonderful. into a pool and then have a gang of shark women devour them <laughs> yeah it's it's super cool it's it that's a that whole section is a great scene and once again goes back to making something mundane like a swimming pool like mm -hmm. a public swimming pool indoor swimming pool into some sort of fantastical science fiction you know uh you know death chamber <laughs> or whatever so um, yeah it's great uh so we 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 talked about it as a film noir and it's it's very much in the in the vein of Orson Welles's uh, films noir, especially uh, Mr. Arkadin and and Touch of Evil, uh, and uh, one of Wells's actors is uh, plays the first guy that that Lemmy is is looking for, uh, Akeem Tamaroff. Uh, did you get the the Wells vibe out of that? Yeah, well, I, I've 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 seen a Wells vibe in uh, technique and style as well, um, and and yeah, it definitely. I mean. The Wells Noir stuff is weird, <laughs> like uh, you know, and this is weird, and so and and so in the general overall weirdness of the whole thing, um, yes, and and um, I mean that scene when he goes to meet him and he ends up like hiding behind a closet as um, as as the man he's hunting or going to see. Uh, kind of makes love to this robot woman um and then he like dies on the bed and he dies on the bed as you know just uh, like uh akim tamaroff dies in touch of evil yeah um and he spends a lot of time on a bed in mr arkadin too mm. 
Yeah, and the yeah, just the the look of the film, especially with like the swinging light bulbs, is very kind of Wellesian kind of shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's reading reading about uh, Alphaville, and uh, did you know that the music video uh, for the Cranberries song "Linger" was inspired by Alphaville? I did not. I don't remember the video for "Linger." Uh, I remember it has swinging light bulbs. Oh, yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. That's one of one of the great pop songs of the '90s. I would Dolores say. Reardon. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, that's I, I. I don't mind talking about the cranberries. Cranberries, yeah. always good to talk about. <laughs> uh, Do you have anything else to say? Oh, uh, did you recognize Jean-Pierre Leon? I did. He comes in at the end. Yeah, I was yeah. very excited to see him. I'm yeah, like, hey. I was too. <laughs> Hey, what's he? And and then I thought because it's him, I was like, well, he's gonna have a a big part in this, no. and he doesn't. No. He did, he's like a bellboy. Yeah, he comes in for like half a second, gives them like some food, and then he's like, peace them out. And you're like, hey, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he's great. Um, I really love at the end too um, when they when everybody's dying. The whole the whole city the city's you know crumbling or you know they got to get the hell out of Dodge because yeah the the the, com- the computer's freaking out and it causes all of the people to like have a breakdown and they like stagger around like like zombies or something and like I bump into walls the staggering was amazing yeah great yeah oh uh, uh, another question for you uh, uh, which Lemmy is better uh, Lemmy Caution or Lemmy from uh, the Motorhead. Uh, wait, you're asking me if anybody's better than Lemmy from Motorhead? I'm sorry, oh. Lemmy from Motorhead is Lemmy from Motorhead. Okay, uh, what about if Lemmy from Motorhead starred in Alphaville? I, I don't think the world could handle that. Like, <laughs> I mean, okay, see, people don't do cool stuff anymore, you know? Mm. If I was an aspiring director, if like I had a couple films under my belt or whatever and I was feeling kind of audacious, I'd remake Alphaville with Lemmy from Motorhead. That would, that would be my crowning glory. I, you know, and I, and I think it would be, I think despite the fact I would probably be a second rate hack, I think the movie would be worthwhile because Lemmy was in it. Or, or, or you, you recut Alphaville with all Motorhead songs. Mm. I don't (laughs) know about that. I think I'd rather see Lemmy from Motorhead as an actor than listen to a Motorhead soundtrack. Oh, are you kidding me? The Ace of Spades! We should listen to... Okay, I think I said a few shows ago we have to do a show with Dead Moon, and now I'm going to get hyped and we're going to do a show all Motorhead at some point. I I saw Motorhead. Did you really? I I saw them open for Alice in Chains in 1993. Whoa! Did they blow Alice in Chains off the stage? No. What? I, I, I was not a fan. What? Sorry. But Lemmy. That's all right. Lemmy, actually, Lemmy was a terrific stage presence. I will give you that. Uh, I actually only know one Motorhead song, and it's Ace of Spades. But that song is, like, really good. Okay. I, I like that song. <laughs> um, you know, little side side note, Lane Staley died across the street from the Metro where we used to work. Yeah. Took lots of drugs. <laughs> di- died of heroin overdose right across the street. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah, <laughs> it was very sad. A lot of people used to come by and and be like, 
looking for that apartment building. <clears throat> yeah, anyway. that was that was always very icky. Yeah. Well, on that happy so on note. That note <laughs> That's our discussion of Alphaville. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to listen to some Atari Teenage Riot now, which also had a member that died from a drug overdose, Carl Crack. Uh, this song is off their first record. It's called Sick to Death. And here it is. Let's just go home now. Okay, let's go. Don't do this, please. takes me back i i have a, i have the first two atari teenage riot albums um that i bought in high school and i played them a lot and uh some of my friends made fun of me and i was like it's cool i you know i dig it it's fun it's kind of punk rock it's kind of silly kind of goofy um and then i hadn't listened to it for like years until like uh i don't know maybe six months ago i was like i'm yeah hey, i'm gonna pull it out you know I dig it. I still dig it. I don't, you know, what's the problem? And you know what I found out while you were on uh, your little break there, Sean? No. They they reformed uh, and put out some new records a couple years ago. Hmm. Who knew? Who Who's paying attention? Not me. I, I don't know that I've ever heard of them or ever heard any of their music, but I had an Atari, which I enjoyed very much, and I also like the Sonic Youth song, Teenage Riot, so... I imagine I will love them. <laughs> I'm sure you will. You're you're a big fan of German techno anarchists, I'm sure. Uh, so you know me moving so well. on, uh, we've got a few things to talk about news-wise this week. Uh, only three of them will be us complaining about stuff. I guarantee it. Only, well, actually, uh, we might 
We yeah. might complain about the fourth thing too. Yeah. Um, first of all, let you want you want to talk about Birth of a Nation, Sean? Yeah. Uh, uh, two days ago, February eighth, as we were recording this on February tenth. Yes. I don't even know what day it is. Yeah, on February eighth was the one hundredth anniversary of the premiere of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a film. It's a movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you probably should. I haven't seen it. You probably should. Uh, it's it's a film that for a long time has been hailed as the first film to do a lot of things that it wasn't the first film to do. Uh, but it was extraordinarily influential. It was a very and important a huge, film. huge, huge box office success. It was a huge hit. Uh, it has been controversial for every one of those 100 years. Uh, it's probably the most virulently racist mainstream film ever to come out of Hollywood. So there's that. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a film that should be seen. And uh, there's, been, there's been some good writing about it uh, over the weekend on the occasion of its uh, anniversary. I sent you... Uh, a thing that that Godfrey Cheshire wrote about it that I think is is really fantastic. It's probably the kind of the best broad overview of all of the issues surrounding Birth of a Nation that I've yet read. Uh, did you get a chance to take a look at that? I'm 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 going back to see if you actually did send that to me. Uh, wait, is this the, the Vulture thing? Yeah. Why we aren't celebrating a hundred? Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't read that. No, you didn't <laughs> read that. Well, it's very good. Uh, I'll put a link in in the notes. It's it's a, uh, it's good. Uh, you should see the movie. Why have know, Why have you not seen the movie? Well, it's one that I mean, it you know, I hadn't seen Alphaville until this week. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I hadn't seen Alphaville until this week. Um, you know, there's there's you know, uh, next week we're going to talk about uh, Doctor Zhivago. Haven't seen that one. I mean, there's you know, you've got gaps. Yeah. And uh, you know, I it's not that I don't want to see it. Um, I hadn't seen Malcolm X till we, you know, we watched it for the show. So, um, you know, I think we need to do a racism episode, like a racist episode. And we'll, we'll talk about birth of a nation and, uh, what's another good, good racist movie. Um, the wizard of Oz dances with wolves. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That'll be a fun one. Uh, so yeah, you know, I, I actually, I, I actually got, uh, there's uh, uh, this guy, uh, DJ Spooky, did like a remix version of Birth of a Nation a few years ago where he like re-edited it with a new soundtrack to supposedly kind of recontextualize the film. That sounds really, really cool. Uh, I uh, just bought it from Amazon. It was like four bucks, uh, but I haven't, uh, it hasn't arrived yet, so I haven't seen uh, it. But yeah, it, it sounds really neat out. and he sounds like a... A guy who has interesting things to say about this movie that you should see. It's okay. uh, I, I saw it. Uh, uh, I've seen it twice actually. I saw it and then I saw it again when I was in when I was in school, and it's uh, it's really difficult 
to take, especially in the second half. The The first half of the movie is, is kind of like the lead up to the Civil War and then the battle scenes themselves um, ending with, with Lincoln's assassination. And it's just, it's uh, as good uh, as blockbuster filmmaking gets. And then the second half is all about how the uh, Ku Klux Klan saved America from the evil black people who had political power. And that's really gross. Uh, but, but the filmmaking is good. Yeah. I mean, and, that's, I mean well, that's and the reason it, the, it the, the thing is, after, after Birth of a Nation, uh, Hollywood didn't stop being racist. They just stopped being so explicit about it. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to see it, uh, because it does kind of show this really, really ugly side of white America that was accepted as just the standard view of history. Sure. Less than a hundred years ago, like within our great grandparents' lifetimes. And, you know, we're not so far away from that as we like to think we are. And, so I think I think uh, I think watching something like that is is important for that reason. I don't think it should be celebrated, though. Like the on the first version of the the AFI uh, top 100 American films list that came out, I think in 1998, uh, Birth of a Nation was on it. And uh, then the second version, the revised version, they did like 10 years later, it was not. And I think uh, that second choice is probably the best one if that makes sense i don't think i don't think it should be hailed as a great movie but it is an important movie that should be seen i i understand that that logic i'll let you know what my opinion is after i see it all right well did you look at the dissolves top 50 of the decade so far list i did and what did you think of that well, you know, when whenever these things come out, um, you know, I have to kind of look at it and, and kind of think about where the heads were at. You know, this is a, a list by consensus. You know, I don't know how many people, you know, they've got, what, half a dozen writers over there or something. So, you know. I think the stuff... they farmed out the voting to a bunch of additional people. Oh, did they? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't recall exactly how many people voted in it. So as a list of, you know, 50 movies from the last five years, um, you know, it it kind of, oh, yeah, oh, here at the bottom. Okay, yeah, it looks like there's maybe 20 people or, or so involved. When, when you get that many people involved, you know, the films that everybody kind of agrees on are the ones that get included. And that's kind of what this list is. It's not a very exciting list. Uh, Boyhood's number one, which is like so boring that it's such a the most boring choice you could possibly make um but you know i mean a lot of the movies on here i really like you know um under the skin is on here uh the movie we're talking about later in the show is on here very high up on there um you know i mean for the most part these are good movies so i you know i'm i'm not one to really complain about it um you know i I, if my list would probably look drastically different and several of these would not be on my list, but, um, you know, I'm, I don't think it's horrible. Um, you probably disagree with me, Sean. I think it's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I really, I really just dislike this list. I mean, you're, you're right. It is, 
it is uh, an expression of consensus, and it is, for the most part, a list of movies that have come out in the past five years. Uh, okay, so, okay, Sean, Sean, <laughs> really, okay. Let me let me just rattle off some movies here. Okay, Exit Through the Gift Shop is on here. Um, Before Midnight is on here. Your beloved Meek's Cutoff is on here. Um, your beloved Moonrise Kingdom is on here. Uh, My beloved Act of Killing. Our beloved Tree of Life. The Master. I mean, these are good movies. I mean, I don't know what your problem is. Toy Story 3. These are really good yeah. movies. Um, sure, take, they're, take shelter. they're obvious. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Amour. Bridesmaids. Guardians of the Galaxy. Wreck-It Ralph. Right, well, gravity. Well, All right, come on. Like I said, I, I, I those would... Boyhood. Have... Boyhood. It's the number one film. Well, I just rattle off, you know, ten that are social network. That movie's awesome. Well, um, like, like what? Two weeks ago, two episodes ago, we talked about the, the, uh, the very similar list that that Kevin Beely did at Fandor, which was a much broader uh, voting pool. It was like a self-selecting voting pool, and I like that list a whole lot more. Yeah, I mean, well. I agree. I think that list was more exciting. I thought there was more diversity on that list. I thought there was more um Right. And you would you would expect generally with the bigger the voting pool, the more the uh the consensus favorite films would uh would rise to the top. So if this dissolve list was was actually like a, a consensus list, you would expect it to be very similar to that one but it's not it's a consensus of the dissolved people and as such it's a it's a reflection of the the filmic ideology of that website and well yeah but i mean it's a list on that website i mean right I mean, <laughs> and and it so it kind of epitomizes the dissolve whether okay, you so, think so what basically, it, so basically you want to complain about the dissolve is what you want to complain about. Uh, basically what what this website is telling me is that the dissolve doesn't have anything interesting to tell me um well okay <clears throat> i <laughs> and i'm being unnecessarily mean but you're, you're being a little a little a little i'm mean being a little mean and and mostly i'm being mean because there's only one east asian film on the list um, I'm looking at Kevin's list right now, mm -hmm. the one that was published in in January, mm -hmm. and uh, the movies that are in the top ten on that list um, are all included on the dissolved list. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I I think that's a good sign. I mean, that 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 makes them the same. I will say this about the dissolve. Um, I I followed. Uh, those writers, as once they defected from the AV Club um, and started that website, and um, we've talked about it on the show before. You know, there are some people over there that I really like. I think Noel Murray is really cool. Tasha Robinson's pretty cool. Um, but I have noticed a decline in quality in the last six months or so. It seems like there's more snark uh, over there. It seems like there's more um, kind of lazy. Uh, arguments and then and and really bad articles over there um, nowadays where I, I don't even like bother to click on them anymore when I see uh, the headline and I'm just like oh you've got to be kidding me we're, we're talking about this is the argument now you know um, so 
I've actually kind of abandoned the site for the most part. I, I check it every once in a while to see what you know certain people think about stuff, but um, I don't think the Dissolve is the greatest film website of all time. Um, clearly, SeattleScreenScene.com, which just launched uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you heard about this site, Sean. I'm not familiar uh, with it. It's it's pretty good. You know, it's a little you know specific. You know, to a, a certain area of the country, but uh, I think the writing over there is strong, really strong. I think they support interesting movies, um, and if they made a list, I think it'd, it'd be right up your alley. Mm. It'd be all Johnny Toe. It'd be like half Johnny Toe, and then the other half like uh, Disney movies. Yeah. Well, we we did make a list and we talked about it when we talked about the Fandor list. So I don't, I don't think we need to go over that again, but you're right. Like the, the Fandor list, the top 10 is all represented among the solve top 50, but, and that is pretty much where they diverge. I think once you get to 16 on the Fandor list, uh, mysteries of Lisbon, uh, it's wildly idiosyncratic 16 through 50. And yeah, but- the dissolve list is not. And, and that's what I want out of a list. I want, I want like weird stuff that people are really passionate about and the dissolve gives me uh, boring stuff that people are really passionate about. Um, not to throw you under the bus here, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, number seventeen: uh, Act of Killing and the Turin Horse, Before Midnight, Melancholia, Francis Ha, and The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, which are six of the between sixteen and twenty-five, uh, are actually also all on that dissolved list. So I, I really think that. These lists are kind of similar. Like the ranking yeah. is different, but uh, I, I, the immigrant, I, Spring Breakers, Taboo, Mysteries of Lisbon, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Is that on the dissolve list? I don't think so. Yeah, but but okay. If 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 I'm if I'm making a percentage here, I'm gonna say eighty percent, eighty five percent of the movies that are on Kevin's list are also on the dissolve list. So, you know, the rankings are different. Um, but I, I don't think these lists are like polar extremes or anything. <clears throat> but anyway, um, <laughs> every kind of list ever totally sucks. So let's move on. Okay. <laughs> and talk about something else we want to complain about. And I'm on board with you on this one. I think this is weird. Are we going to complain? You're going to complain about this, aren't you? Uh, yeah. Let me let me pull it up. Okay. So the Cinerama. Uh, in Seattle, just reopened uh, back in December. Uh, they uh, tore out all the seats, put in these new plush seats um, that, with a lot more wiggle room. Uh, I saw Goodbye to Language there. It was glorious. It's a it's a great place to go see movies. It always has been. I mean, Cinerama. It's it's a true Cinerama theater. They are you know equipped to do the full widescreen Cinerama um, presentations. They do a seventy millimeter festival. Yada, yada, yada. Um, and they have some interesting programming. They kind of alternate the programming between the big budget, you know, like your Interstellars and your Hobbits and stuff, um, which they run for, you know, a week or two at a time. And then they do these kind of mini festivals. And they have this new festival coming up called Fists and Fury. And uh, it's, it's touting itself as the Seattle's first mixed martial arts film festival. Which is all well and good. I think that's that's fine. That's you know, it sounds like an interesting, and I, I would be interested to see uh, a, um, a film program like that. However, rattle off some of the movies that are playing there uh, for me, Sean. Enter the Dragon, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Kung Fu Hustle, Yojimbo, 
Rashomon, Shaolin Soccer, Game of Death, Ipmon, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2. Uh, I would not in any shape or form uh, kind of put all of those very disparate and all, 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 all very good films, but I, I would not um, lump them all under the kind of umbrella of fists and fury, which feels very um, reductive and uh, kind of insulting. Uh I would I would, if I was going to like if I wanted to go see something a film in a fists and fury festival I'm not plunking down 15 bucks to go see Rashomon. I love Rashomon. It's a great movie. It is no it's not a martial arts movie at all. Yeah, what it's we not, what we basically have here is uh the dissolve of martial arts <laughs> film festivals. Uh First of all, the the Kurosawa films, maybe Yojimbo has a place in this because uh, these were you know very influential on on this whole genre of films. Yojimbo and Seven Samurai in particular. Uh, there's no excuse to play Rashomon in a festival like this. Uh, yeah. Harakiri, the Masaki Kobayashi film, which we discussed uh, a couple of years ago on the show, also a great movie, also okay. doesn't belong. Uh, Black Belt Jones, apparently in a subtitled 35 millimeter print. I, I'm curious what language it's subtitled in. I would uh, be surprised. Okay, for one, I'm sure that's a mistake on their website. I um, hope so. Which, which, which yeah, I, I caught that and had to you know poke fun at it. Um, I would be surprised if they actually have even a 35 millimeter print of that thing. It's probably going to run DCP and they just screwed up on their website. Uh, Black Belt Jones is great. And mm. it's a great kind of uh chop socky kind of you know goofy um you know jim kelly going ooh like over and over again fights in a car wash it's a fun movie and that would be a movie i would go see during this festival but you're playing it the day after seven samurai like what kind of dissonant kind of reality are you trying to create well there's no there's no ideology behind the choices in the programming here you 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 have within this series a complete bruce lee retrospective all on dcp no yeah. no 35 millimeter prints and you know i'm not going to i'm not going to kill them for playing dcp i know uh our our friend matt is very upset that they're not playing more more actual 35 prints of these but you know the 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 realities of repertory programming being are that they are you know and the fact that cinerama is owned by paul allen maybe they should have thrown more resources into this but if this is the kind of programming that the people who program the cinerama do i don't blame paul allen for not giving them an unlimited budget um for the some of the other stuff they're playing they're playing uh uh jackie chan movies uh snake in the eagle shadow drunken master 2 uh, but they're playing them dubbed Right. Which is appalling. They're on DCP. You can get a subtitled DVD or Blu-ray of Drunken Master 2 or Snake in the Eagle Shadow. There's no reason to play it dubbed. Uh, well, the dubbed version is going to be edited, too. Like, it's yeah. like it's not going to be... like It's one thing to just have... But you're not showing the original. You're showing the, the one that was bastardized for American audiences to kind of... Um, you yeah, know, as, as, just... as, far, as far as I know, there's no English subtitled version of drunken master 2 with the original cantonese score and and soundtrack uh there is scarecrow has a blu-ray 
that has a Cantonese uh, uh, dialogue track with English subtitles, but the score is the the Miramax score, which is different from the original Lao Kar Lung score. Uh, but that's you know that's that's getting over technical. Like there's no excuse, no excuse ever to play a dubbed version of a movie. If the only 35 millimeter print of Snake in the Eagle Shadow is in, that is in existence is dubbed, then maybe you play it that way. But maybe you know, maybe you just play Drunken Master One instead. Like the dubbing, uh, dubbing is an absolute crime against Hong Kong cinema, and to continue to to perpetuate that is just appalling. Unless you're the RZA. And you, and you need to weave some some snippets uh, throughout your Wu Tang Clan albums. I, yeah, well, that is that is a cultural artifact. Like like the the Wu Tang Clan grew up watching dubbed versions of these movies, and they managed to to respect them a lot more than most people do when they see them dubbed. But you're you're perpetuating. Uh, this image of of these films, of, of kung fu films, of Hong Kong films as gen- in general, as disposable trash when you show them dubbed, and it's it's outrageous, and it continues. There's a uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, El Rey TV channel uh, has uh, rights to a bunch of Shaw Brothers movies, but they only play them dubbed. Mm. Uh, a bunch of them. Uh, a bunch of uh, Celestial Pictures put a bunch of Shaw Brothers movies on Hulu right now. You can watch them. They're all dubbed. I, Celestial yeah. did a, an amazing job in the late 90s restoring, uh, putting out good, really good digital versions of classic Shaw Brothers films, all of which are subtitled. And there's no reason for them to be on Hulu dubbed. I am, I am outraged. I am full of rage <laughs> at this. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... and and moving on from that, uh, there's no there's no uh, sense of progression of the history of the genre. Like, what are they actually trying to do with this? It looks like they just cobbled together the the fifteen somewhat martial arty movies that they could get their hands on. There's no there's no sense of logic to it. There's no sense of of, of history. There's no progression of the genre. There's no these are the early films and you see their influence in later films go up to today, you know, the way a normal person would curate a program like this. I just, I don't understand it at all. Well, you, you know, you, you, you know, made a dig of it. Like it's the dissolves version, but it's, it's worse than that. It's like, um, someone's personal, like IMDB list of like Kung Fu movies I've seen, you know, just yeah. some Yahoo out of, no, you know, nowhere uh, that that's just lists like random movies. It's like they took the first 15 they saw and were like, we'll run these having no idea what they're what they're doing with them or what these are. And, and, none, <clears throat> of, and none of these are obscure movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a great movie. Everyone has seen it. Yeah, Enter the Dragon. Everyone has seen that. If you've seen a Jackie Chan movie, you've probably seen Drunken Master 2. Uh, the Kurosawa movies play all the time in Seattle. There's no reason to do that. The, the best uh, combination of an obscure film 
uh, and a great film is Once Upon a Time in China, which I don't think has played probably in Seattle since the varsity started, stopped doing uh, Kung Fu double features. But it's playing on Blu-ray at three o'clock on a Wednesday. Yeah. It's I just, I don't under, I don't understand the, the purpose of, of this. No, I don't, I th- I don't I think know it's why a, it's here. I think it's a huge misfire. I think it's a great opportunity. And I, and I, you know, like, like I said, like I, I applaud the fact that Cinerama wants to do stuff other than just running the latest tentpole, you know, summer blockbuster type, you know, big screen, you know, extravaganza the latest marvel movie or whatever like i'm glad that they they want to branch out and do stuff but when you come out the gates and you you know fumble it this badly it really does not you know bode well for future programs from well yeah and if and if this doesn't do well the next time somebody at you know an uh uh, a local theater like a uh, SIF for the film forum or something. Maybe they want to put together a Shaw brothers program. They're going to look at the, the receipts for the cinerama and say, well, it flopped there. So let's not run Hong Kong movies. Yeah. And that's irritating. Yeah. So it's a double, you know, so yeah, I, it's I a, it's like a it. shitty series and hopefully it's a big smash hit. <laughs> I mean, I actually, you know, trying to separate from the theme of the whole thing. I mean, I would love to go see some of these movies, you know, especially at Cinerama. I mean, come on, that sure. would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, Black Belt Jones, Monday night at 1045 or something in the, and it's like, ah, anyway. Um, so last thing we're going to complain about, uh, I thought it was going to be the nice thing, but I guess we're wrong. I was wrong. Uh, <laughs> we talked about the varsity theater where you started, uh, working, uh, w- when you moved to Seattle in 1974, Sean, yeah. um, and they closed at the end of last year, and they're reopening this Friday, the 13th. Um, they are back in the U District. They have a new projection system. They've updated their um, concession stand. They've done some other mi- minor upgrades. Um, but unfortunately, once again, the programming leaves a little to be desired. And I, I take it that's where we're going with that, Sean? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've never been to any of the, the theaters that this company runs. I think they also do the, the Arc Lodge cinema. Um, they, they basically seem to be like, a, like, a, like the Majestic Bay also. Uh, it's a different company, but I think they kind of do the same kind of thing. It's basically just like landmark. It's just like your general generic art house stuff. Your Oscar yeah. movies, your... Yeah. European films. Nothing yeah. too exciting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, which is I a mean, shame because, you know, this, the U District could, could you know, the U District is where you could go, you know, you we've got the Grand Illusion there, which shows, you know, it's probably the most adventurous film programming in the city. Yes. Um, at, least, at least the film pro- programming that gets me the most excited is at the Grand Illusion. Um, but then you've also, but then you've got uh, the Sundance down there, which kind of has, you know. Is that same thing. It's doing, it's already doing that thing. So why don't, why don't you do something a little different with your three screen, you know, theater. Um, and the varsity is a nice theater. I like it, you know? Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, yeah, I agree. Maybe, maybe they'll do some cool stuff with it. Maybe, maybe not. Probably it'll just end up being the same as all of those other theaters. Like how many theaters can play a theory of everything? Yeah. 
I don't really get it, but whatever. That's Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> that is Seattle. Let's talk about someone that uh, is a true revolutionary and someone that makes challenging movies um, that play at, uh, you know, Cinerama for one night only. Um, and that's Jean-Luc Godard, uh, who is our person of the week. Um, uh, Godard, of course, a Swiss filmmaker who was one of the, the major figures of the French New Wave in the 1950s and 60s um, that began as film critics and then started making a bunch of movies. Uh, we talked about his uh, uh, friend slash rival slash enemy, uh, Francois Truffaut, uh, very early on in the run of uh, the George Sanders show. Uh, but we've never, this is a, the Alphaville this week is the first time we've actually talked about one of Godard's films. Um, his career is is generally divided into into two phases. The the films he made from from Breathless in uh, 1959, 1960, or uh, up until 1968 with Weekend, uh, and then after that he made a bunch of Maoist films, and then he made a bunch of weird films that everybody hates except for film critics, basically. That's isn't that three different parts? Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like he's kind of like Bob Dylan, yes. where the 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 timing of everything it it really follows kind of the same yeah his, template. His his and Dylan's careers are are more comparable than uh, are remarkably comparable this remarkable burst of 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 creativity and and popular success in the 1960s followed by a period of withdrawal and then kind of a meandering uh journey through you know various styles of of uh of their art form kind of uh, exploring its uh its roots and its uh its outer edges with varying degrees of uh of critical success but never reaching the popular heights that they had in their youth. Right. Uh, they are, they're close to the same age. I think Godard is a little bit older than Dylan, maybe like a decade older. Uh, but other than that, I think they're, they're kind of the two of the, the defining artists of the, the 20th century. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, you said that Alphaville was the first that you saw. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a, a very funny choice. Um, my first Godard film was Masculine Feminine, um, which uh, is also kind of an interesting choice. I mean, it it to me that feels more uh, well, it's more conventional to a degree. Um, it, I mean, it's got weird stuff in it, and it's got you know weird inner titles and and, and stuff like that, um, but. You know, I think it really taps into the exuberance of, of Godard. Um, what would you say, though, um, is the best starting point? Like, if someone if someone was cold to Godard, which which movie would you stick in their hand uh, first? Uh, Pierre Le Fou, yeah, I think is 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 his best film. It's it's my favorite of his films. Um, I think it's kind of the the best mix of all of the things that he does really well, and it's got Anna Karina and, and Jean Paul Belmondo. Uh, 
Breathless, Breathless is, is, is a good choice. I think a, a Woman on a Woman is like an interesting choice of the first one and also, and also Contempt because they all kind of have... Contempt? You yeah. would start someone with Contempt? Yeah. Oh, no, no. They, they, I, all, I, have, they all have generic forebearers that, that make them you know, somewhat relatable in, in a way that, that you know, a more experimental movie like, like Goodbye to Language or, or Weekend or, or God forbid, Istuar to Cinema uh, really don't. But, uh, yeah, I, they're, they're I, all great. <laughs> I would save... I would save contempt if you're if you're trying to get into Godard. I I love it. I think it's great. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, and I actually re- want to rewatch it um, soon because it's been a while. Um, I think that one's a little harder to handle than than you're selling it, Sean. Um, yeah. I I would say I would suggest uh, Breathless, as you said. It's a great starting point. It's got the girl, the gun. It's it's good to go. Um, uh, and also, I think uh, Band of Outsiders is is a crowd pleaser, um, and I think it really uh, just moves at a clip and it, and is endlessly entertaining through its entire run. It it isn't as challenging as his other movies, and maybe therefore not as you know totally gratifying in the long run. But I think as a as a means of like sinking yourself into his world, I think that and Breathless are probably the best bets. Yeah, Breathless was uh, was kind of our our white whale in in Spokane in in the mid '90s because we it was not it did not exist in that city on video. We uh, every once in a while when we were we were bored with a weekend we would just drive to every video store in the city looking to see if they had a copy of Breathless and and nobody ever had it. Eventually, after after years of looking. Um, we found it in like a, a jazz record store that had decided to to rent like import VHSs as like a sideline to their their record business, and we found it there and rented it for like ten bucks, and and watched it, and uh, we we're kind of disappointed. But oh, really? <laughs> well, you know, after all of that build, you, you up, have to chase it for yeah. all that time. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's great. It is a great movie, but um, yeah, that that's. Uh, you know, kind of the 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 difference between 1996 and you know just less than 10 years later, you could you could watch Breathless on on your TV just streamed over uh, Netflix or something, and that's yeah. uh, it's like a generational thing. It makes me feel very very old. Like the, these movies, all of these Godard movies, were something I had to move to the big city to see, and now anyone can watch them. Yeah, it, uh, it a huge shift has taken place. Yeah, um, and it's a but it's a good thing, you know. It's good that there's now kids that are growing up in you know podunk towns um, like Spokane that um, you know have access to this stuff now. Yeah, I mean it is. I I wonder if it's. I mean, it does this is this is like going bit. off on a tangent. Yeah, kind of it kind of cheapens it, and also it means that there's like a glut of of stuff. There's so much thing, so much available that I think people just some people get really into it. I, I, I know a lot of, of cinephiles who are ridiculously young who have seen so many great movies. Um but I I think it, it might be intimidating to people to just have everything available all the time. And that that idea of like anticipation of of looking for stuff and searching for things and when once you get it, uh 
you know, cherishing the fact that you finally got it. It, it that is that is kind of missing. Uh, it, so it still so exists. Telling... There's there's still stuff that's not that's not out there, but it's it's a lot rarer than than it used to be. But isn't it a great feeling being able to go to Scarecrow and get like most everything you want? Yeah, it's I, I have conflicted feelings about modernity. What can I say? No, I. I and speaking I, I, of conflicted feelings about modernity, uh, Jean Luc Godard. Yes. <laughs> um... uh, so I, I mentioned I mentioned when you were talking about Alphaville that I don't I don't think he's uh, given credit for being as funny as he is, and uh, I don't exactly know why that is because I think I think every single one of his films, at least in part, is hilarious. I think so too. I think he has a great sense of humor and I, and to me it's very it's not hidden. It's like it's on the surface. There's a moment in Alphaville where uh Lemmy Caution is uh he goes to meet Anna Karina and she's in this like classroom where they're kind of being indoctrinated into some sort of like philosophical um double speak kind of thing and and he goes in and, there, and there's all these highfalutin words and stuff and the camera kind of pans around all of these like eager minds listening to this stuff being spoken and it's all very heady and stuff and he leaves the room and and the scene ends and she comes downstairs to meet him and she says why did you leave and um he says because I didn't understand what anybody was talking about, which is so funny. Like that, like people like go to Godard and they, and they expect these kind of like very, you know, thoughtful, like French, you know, philosophical debates and stuff, which are in there. But then he pokes holes in them throughout. And he does that in goodbye to language. Um, I mean, goodbye to language is full of these, you know, famous uh, philosophies and, and these, in these kind of, you know, very, poetic um, musings on life and all this stuff um, punctuated by a guy sitting on a toilet, just pooping for like five minutes while he's talking about this stuff. Um, yeah. And it's also, it's, it's, it's structured with, with puns. Like the one reason I, I, I use uh, I do, I, I do all langage as the, the title of the film instead of goodbye to language is because the, the French title is the basis for a number of, of puns throughout the film that it's 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 so much more playful than any review of the film will let you, will lead you to believe and i'm not exactly sure why that is i think i think people tend to approach godard like he's like some guru like he's got all of these these fabulous insights that that none of us can possibly understand because he's Swiss and he speaks in these gnomic aphorisms that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and I think that that's kind of, I think he's joking at least 50% I think, uh, of the time. Like, I, think I don't, so I think, I don't think his movies are, are utterances of truth so much as they are, kooky ideas that kick around in his head that he likes to, to fuck with people by putting in his movies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, not the, yeah. I mean, I think his, you know, dalliances with like Maoism and stuff like, you know, I think he's like genuinely interested in this stuff. You know, I don't think it's just like, totally Oh, no, I have, I have around. no doubt that he would, he was at least in, in the late sixties and early seventies, very politically committed. But I think you can be politically committed and be funny at the same time. Like, like La Chinoise, which is 
1967 film that is about this like group of uh, youthful Maoists with uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot and 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 uh, Wieczynski, uh is really funny, and it's kind of taking these these kids who have this very serious ideology. It's taking them seriously, but also kind of making fun of their absurdity. And I think a, a lot of his his films in in the sixties do that, and I think his essay films kind of do too. Uh, on yeah, on mean, the other hand, he keeps talking about the Holocaust, <laughs> which is not funny at all. So I don't know. Yeah, well, I had I had a lot of people, not a lot of people, but I, you know, um, when I saw Goodbye to Language, um, I I came back raving about it. Like I was talking about, you know, the uh, cinematography. It's gorgeous to look at. I was, you know, going off on it and, and, and I convinced a few people to go see it, you know? Um, and one guy came back and he said, you owe me 15 bucks. Like what the hell, you know? Um, and like, and I, I feel like they didn't get the humor. They didn't like, like they kind of negated all of the fun and playfulness of it because they were looking for something that was supposed to be really profound and, um, you know, just some very, you know, amazing treatise on life or something like that. Whereas I just really liked the dog and thought it was cool to look at. Yeah. Um, uh, did you, so, you, you, you haven't seen, uh, his last feature, uh, uh, film socialism. No, I I actually just made a list on Letterboxd today where I ranked uh, the movies that I've seen of his. And uh, Goodbye to Language is actually the only post-68 film of his I've actually seen. Uh, um, uh, so I need, to see, I need to see all that stuff. Uh, film, film socialism has, is divided into three sections. And the middle section takes place uh, uh, with this family who runs a gas station. And uh, it kind of you know follows some almost plot-like things about this family. And there are repeated shots of this llama just kind of hanging out at the gas station. And there's this, uh, there was this great interchange on the, uh, the version of the, the Roger Ebert show that, that Ignati, Ignati Vishnevetsky and Christy Lemire did, where she was panning the movie and he was enthusiastically in favor of it. And they have this, this great, exchange about the llama she's like why is there a llama there what does the llama mean and ignati is like why shouldn't there be a llama there it's awesome there's a llama at a gas station and and that to me is like the the essence of how to enjoy godard it's like yeah a llama at a gas station why not yeah don't, yeah, don't ask why just yeah. like yeah just roll with it just, absolutely yeah um i totally agree with that absolutely yes yes <laughs> And tying it back into the the Dylan analogy, like uh, Bob Dylan spent like most of the last fifty years trying to not be the voice of his generation, and getting uh, attacked by his fans for abandoning that kind of political uh, persona. I think that that Godard is is kind of in the same box that people expect him to be like the voice of cinema, and I don't really think that he is that guy like in some ways he's he's egotistical enough to think that he is but i don't think as much as people would like him to be right well he's he he's willing to point that finger at himself but half it's half in jest yeah absolutely yeah he's he's he is the great cranky old man of cinema (laughs) 
And we need cranky old men in cinema. Absolutely. You know, we really do. It's underappreciated. Absolutely. I, I, I love them. Well, um, and Let's you know, I think. Well, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, you go. And I, and I think that that kind of obscures the more kind of basic, kind of primal things in his films. Not just not just the humor, but also the 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 beauty of them. Like even his like most uh, dense, most complex, uh, uh, you know, political philosophical statements are just gorgeous films to look at. Uh, something, something like passion, uh, is, is narratively pretty hard to follow, but it's just got some amazing imagery in it and, and goodbye to language, as as you know, you know, for large stretches is just a dog walking through the woods and it's like the best looking thing ever. And it's, it's beautiful. There's the one shot of like waves just lapping that's just phenomenal yeah and 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 nobody talks about that as much as they should like they all want to talk about the ideas all of the you know the complexities the juxtapositions the the philosophy but just on on the the level of just a pure creation of images uh godard is as good as anybody absolutely in 100 film history uh so that is is obviously we could talk about Godard forever. People have been talking about him for sixty years now, so let's not do that. And Almost as long as Birth of a Nation. <laughs> let's talk about our uh, essential film of the week, which is the Essential Golden Bear winner, which is the top prize at the Berlin Film Festival, which has been awarding prizes since what nineteen fifty two. Uh, and it is going on right now. Uh, Terrence Malick looks like he's in a good position to win this year. We'll, we will see. Yeah, the first reports are coming out about uh, his new film, Night of Cups, which uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty darn excited about. Yeah, I'm 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 very anxious about the reviews of uh, Jang Wen's new film, Gone with the Bullets, which is playing probably like right now as we record this. Um, it's got a, a very uh, controversial and, and mixed response on its release in China. So I don't know. I hope it's good. Anyway, so what is your essential golden bear? Well, uh, my first choice was actually Terrence Malick because um, mm. he did previously win uh, for The Thin Red Line, uh, his return to cinema after 20 years uh, away. But uh, I really i I couldn't deny the majesty of spirited away uh Hayao Miyazaki's animated film from two thousand two uh which we talked about Miyazaki at length on you know we did that special episode of they shot pictures podcast and we talked about him uh on this show as well but spirited away is 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 cinema personified it's it's a Alice in Wonderland type story of a girl who um, gets separated from her parents as, as they're moving to a new city. And it's, it's, it's just full of childlike, you know, fear and wonder. And, um, it's absolutely gorgeous and, um, devastating and just beautiful. And, and, and it's great. And it should win every award every year, uh, because it's amazing. What is your pick, Sean? Uh, you know, I'm looking. I'm looking through the list, and there's a lot of of big name movies 
on here. Like I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know as much about the Berlin film. It's not as famous as, as can or, or God forbid Sundance. Um, and, uh, so I don't I don't know that if the Berlin Film Festival really has the kind of identity that some of the other major film festivals do. Like a, a lot of these, a lot of the winners are kind of mainstream type movies. Even going back to to the beginning with like Twelve Angry Men or or Wild Strawberries, they seem to have like a history of of awarding big, auteur established auteur works. Like even like uh, Robert Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or John Cassavetti's Love Streams. Or Rain Man, uh, but what what I what I like uh, film festivals to do is is award movies that maybe uh, aren't as established that that aren't as big names. And looking through this one one that that jumps out at me is the 1993 co-winner, which is uh, Ang Lee's The Wedding Banquet, which was his second film but it was kind of the first one to to get him any kind of notoriety and it's a uh it's a good movie it's it's one that i haven't seen in a long time but it's one that kind of established lee as a as a director to to watch and kind of build his career uh and so yeah i i, I will pick that one cuz i think I think giving giving the award to to something like that is something that a film festival should do. Like uh, they gave him a, the award again three years later for Sense and Sensibility, and by that point, I don't think he needed it. They should have gone somewhere else. Does that make sense? I understand that argument, and I'm yeah. sure you were happy that Paul Greengrass won uh, for one of his early films. Uh, I know he's one of your favorite directors. Um, yeah. He 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 tied in 2002 with Spirited Away for his film Bloody Sunday. So I'm 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 glad that uh, Berlin could come through for you there on that one, Sean. Uh, we're gonna take a little break from me razzing Sean, uh, and we're gonna hear a little clip from our second film this week, uh, the 2011 winner from of the Golden Bear, um, A Separation. <laughs> بلکه نمیخواد با من بیا من پدرم نمیتونم بل کنم پدرشون آلزایمر اون میفهمه که تو پسرشی من که میفهمم اون پدرمه من الان تکلیفم چی میشه هاجا هیچی بفهمه سر زندگی تو خدافز بفهمه سر زندگی تو برای نگهداری پدرم محمد آقا چون بشه که چی کار دارم Thank 
Okay, that was a clip from A Separation uh, from writer-director Asghar Farhardi. Uh, it's an Iranian film that came out in 2011. Like I said, uh, it's about uh, a couple at the beginning. They separate. Uh, the wife wants to move to an, another country, uh, get a new, new start, um, and the husband uh, wants to stay where where they've been living uh, to take care of his elderly father who has Alzheimer's. Um and so they split up temporarily, at least, and um, they have a young daughter. She's about 11 years old. Um, and he hires a woman to come to his house to take care of his uh, father while he's at work. And um, this leads to an incident uh, that basically the whole movie kind of interrogates for the rest of the film. Um, she, the woman that came to help is, is pregnant uh, we discover and uh, she lost the baby. Uh, she had a miscarriage and there's a question of whether or not it was uh, due to actions from the husband um, or if it was unrelated. And there's a lot of yelling in this movie. Uh, tensions are high basically from the beginning. Um, <laughs> this is not a feel good movie. Uh, it's very uh, intense for its entire two hour running time. But it's also very effective, and it's it's a movie that uh, is calibrated so well um, that you don't even really notice how, at least I don't, when I'm watching it. it sometimes these movies where people are constantly screaming at each other and, and having these, you know, very vicious, you know, arguments uh, stresses me out. And for some reason, I've seen a separation twice now. Um, it doesn't here. And um, this is your first time seeing it, Sean. Um, yeah. This won the uh, Oscar, uh, Best Foreign Language Film, uh, that year. Um, and it's and is kind of a big name. Uh, um, have you seen any other Fahardi films? Or is you no, I, I am uh, largely ignorant of Iranian film. I've, I've seen uh, a few Abbas Kiristami films, and that is it. So okay. this, this was my first non-Kiristami Iranian film. Well, do you have anything to say about a separation besides the fact that um, Leela Hatami, who plays the wife, uh, is very attractive? Uh, yeah, it's it's good. <laughs> it is it is it is a good movie for for the kind of movie it is. It is really great. I think it's a really good movie. I I I. Yeah, sorry. Keep going. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a courtroom drama and a a domestic drama, and that to me is a kind of limited genre. Uh, but it does it it does that thing very well. It's a very well constructed screenplay. It's very well acted by everyone. Uh, but what it what it leaves me with more than anything else is that this story is why we have lawyers. <laughs> like so, uh, so much of the drama from this in this film is the accuser and the accused yelling at each other and getting in very heated emotional arguments in front of the judge and the poor judge just trying to figure out what the truth is. And if there was an advocate disinterested representing the two parties 
the whole situation could be solved a lot more easily. So, I mean, this, this is like, it, it, it plays to me like an American Bar Association recruitment ad. <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting take. Uh, um, I see what you're saying. Um, you know, I think the movie is, like I said, really calibrated, um, to parcel out this information about what's happened, what happened. And, and we pick up things in, in these arguments that kind of change our perspective on what happened, um, kind of in a Rashomon-esque sort of way. I mean, it's not like a, it's, it's not like formally adventurous in any sort of way. It's very tight. That, that, Um, that is the structure of a courtroom drama. Like they usually like a thing like a Perry Mason episode or something like, like at, at every, you know, commercial break, uh, the, the protagonist discovers a new piece of evidence that throws the case into a new light. Uh, I mean, that's sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, there's I, just, there's just no, there's just no attorneys here. Right. It's like everyone uh, yeah. left to figure it out for themselves. Um, I didn't think of lawyers. Uh, I did, I did feel for the judge. I'll tell you that much. I, I, I was like, man, that guy's got the worst job in the world. Like he really does having to having to deal with this stuff. But um Well what what do you what do you think about the fact like the the opening sequence is is kind of the most uh it's it's well shot throughout. It's it's kind of uh you know, it's like an on the fly shooting, but it but it's 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 well done. Uh the the first shot of the film is is kind of the most visually striking. It's when uh uh the the woman and her husband are are arguing over their potential divorce before a judge. And the two of them are sitting facing directly at the camera with the camera in the position that the judge would be um, kind of putting the, the audience in this position to choose between the two of them as they argue on whether or not she should be able to leave with their daughter. Um, and then the film kind of goes away from that for the end for the rest of the time. It's more an objective perspective. Like the, the camera is never really, uh, subjective in that same way. Yes. I, and I think that's, I think that's obviously totally deliberate. And, uh, sure. I think it's an interesting choice. I think it, I, I, um, I think doing it in that very first scene engages you immediately as, as, as these kind of pleas are being directed, you know, with eye contact to the viewer, um, which gets you really hooked up in, in, you know, what's going on. You're trying to, you know, figure out, you know, who's who and, and what's going on here. And, and then, and then to then remove itself from that kind of environment and place you in the, the day-to-day realities of these people. Um, I think it's a smart move. I think it's really well done. Um, and I, and I love the way that the movie is shot throughout, um, as you said, kind of fly on the wall. Um, the camera is, is for the most part, really tight. Like there's a lot of, you know, it's most of it's shot in this apartment that they live in. And so the spaces are small and cramped and, um, you, it usually have two people on screen, but there, you never get much beyond those two people um, in a frame, um, which which kind of adds to the kind of um, claustrophobia and kind of um, yeah. There's there's always kind of dividers in a frame, like you're you're looking into a room from outside of it, or or if two people are talking in the in the kitchen, one of them will walk over and close the door to the hallway. Um, or yeah, and when you're and even the scenes that take place outside are almost entirely shot from inside of a car. Right. Which is, uh, from what I know of Kiristami, I I think, uh, shooting from inside of a car seems to be like a, a hallmark of Iranian cinema. Mm. 
<laughs> well, yeah. Uh, um, and so I think, the, you know, I, I think it really does, uh, like you said, I think it's a, it's a really well-constructed screenplay. And I think that um, the implementation of all of these ideas in, in the, the filmmaking is really, really good. Um, and another thing that I get from this movie is this peek into the differences in this society that, you know, the, there are things that come up narratively in this story that would not happen if this took place. And beyond your lawyer argument there, Sean. Um, that kind of thing is what, what kind of makes me uncomfortable about the movie. Uh, I, I, I get the feeling that, that a lot of people watch a movie like this um, and, and they're like me. They, they don't know much about Iran. They don't know much about Iranian cinema. And a lot of the interest in it comes from the the outside perspective is like oh those people are so different from me it's kind of like an ethnographic look at them and i get the feeling that the film is kind of playing to that like i don't know that if this film was made for an iranian audience it would make some of the same plot choices it does like it seems to be directed outward towards an international art house market. And that kind of, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I did kind of, I mean, I, I did get something from that, from, from the, you know, the way that, you know, religion plays into someone's life, um, which, you know, I mean, that, that doesn't have to necessarily be, um, you know, Iran, you know, necessarily. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I kind of actually liked the, the glimpse into this society. I know what you're saying. I, I see like how oh, maybe it could be kind of just uh, tourism or something right. for somebody like um, lazy tourism. But I actually, um, you know, I watch movies to see different cultures and, um, yeah, I don't think this movie is like pantomiming uh, or making some like um, exaggerated depiction of what life is like. I think this movie is probably pretty honest about the realities um, people face in this country um, in terms of, you know, weighing, you know, moral choices and, and um, you know. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I don't know it, that I would have had that reaction to it had I seen it at the Berlin Film Festival in 2011 before anyone else had seen it and before, you know, it had won the Academy Award, before it made the Dissolves top five. Because, like, it, seeing it now, four years later, uh, it, it seems to have this position as, like, the Iranian film that white people like. And... <laughs> And you're you know, so grumpy this week. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's unfair baggage to put on the movie when it's the problem with the white people. But, um, but well, like I said, this is, is. The, this is the second time I've seen it, and I feel like it's it holds up as a film um, through and through. I have I have one problem with this movie, um, and my problem may be a little unfair um, too. But um, I so. As we said throughout the movie, little tidbits are are released uh, to kind of keep us interested in in what's going on, like in, in whether or not you know he's culpable um, for this miscarriage that that occurred. Um, and I don't mind 
getting pieces of information, like whether or not he knew she was pregnant at the time, stuff like that. I think, I think it's handled really well, um, being released periodically throughout the movie. But the exception is, and this is a total spoiler, but, um, we don't know that she was hit by a car, um, the day before we, we see the beginning of that scene. We see her going to help, uh, the, the father with Alzheimer's has, has wandered out into the street and she goes downstairs and tries to, you know, coax him back into the house. And there's a lot of traffic and we see that, but we don't actually see her getting hurt. And right. I feel like it's a bit of a cheat for the movie to set us up with, with its kind of, um, it, it gives you an objective narration, but it cuts out. It cuts out a very big component of of what's going on, right? Which, and 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 it also cuts out her her potential fall from the stairs, which is is in her version of events the the incident that caused the the miscarriage. Like we we don't see that. We see him we see him push her from his perspective, but we don't see what happens after he pushes her. So the the you know the two key areas where she was potentially injured happen off screen. Well, I don't, I, I don't know about like, yeah, we don't see her slip on the stairs, but, but we see everything that he is involved with. Right. In that scene, at, which, which, you know, goes, to, I, I think, I, I think it shows you enough during that scene to where you can make your own decision about what happened as opposed to like cutting it. Like, the other the other scene is more egregious because it's 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 as if they were yelling at each other and then the next thing you knew it was the next day and she was like I lost my baby because um, right. we do see her you know screaming in pain and and you know on the stairs and stuff but uh, we also we also see information that the two the other two characters do not we we know what happened to the money and neither the guy nor the 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 woman do. Like that's, that's like the, the incident that, that gets him angry after, after he finds his father, um, on the floor, he gets mad at her and then he, uh, looks in his drawer where he keeps his money and the money's not there. So he assumes that she stole it, which only, you know, further fuels their argument. But we know exactly what happened to the money because we saw it earlier. I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. What, what happened to it? Uh, the, the wife used it to pay the movers who was moving the piano. Oh, See, I've seen it twice. Didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah, we see her like counting the money. She's like counting the money for like two minutes, and then she just hands the whole pile over to him. I was like, "This will, this will pay for it." You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I. Well, see, didn't work on me because I apparently <laughs> didn't didn't catch that part. But you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's 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 a mystery film, and it's, and it's and it's very constructed. Like it's not it's not. In, in a more formally rigorous film, you would expect it to keep the same objective perspective throughout all of the events of the film. And then in, in cutting out a key element like that would be a cheat. But if you see it as a mystery film, as a courtroom drama, then of course you're going to leave out some bits of information in order to sustain the mystery. Right. In the same way that like, uh, you know, an Agatha Christie won't tell you exactly who is killing who because that's the whole point of the story. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I I saw it as that kind of a genre film, so it, it didn't bother me that 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 information was missing. 
Okay. Well, and like I said, I mean, most of it, the missing information I was fine with, but for some reason, yeah, that one piece, you know, was a little more glaring. <coughs> also, and I don't know if I've just seen too many films where people get hit by cars, but every time somebody walks into the street now, and my wife is the same way, like she starts to flinch as soon as anyone walks into a street because we're just assuming they're going to get hit by a car. Uh, and it happens a, more than you'd think. Uh, there's this shot that is kind of hip now where you're shooting from inside of a car mm-hmm. um, and you're, you're shooting the driver. You're in like the passenger sh- seat and you're shooting the driver. And then, you know, those collisions come like unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a whiplash does that too. Yeah. Yeah. Whip, whiplash. Uh, no country for old men mm-hmm. uh, is the one that I really remember where that happens um, at near the end. And every time we're watching a movie where, where that shot is taking place, uh, my girlfriend just assumes there's going to be a car accident. Like uh, she's... Singles. Singles is a great one. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's just this anticipation now where it's become so cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to be a jump scare. Yeah. Uh, but now you see it all the time that you're just bracing for it and it's, and it's become uh, totally redundant. But okay. Anyway. So, so let's, let's summarize the, this episode so far. What we need is uh, uh, more recognition of John Luc Godard being funny. Uh, we need <laughs> uh, better uh, martial arts films at the Cinerama. We need uh, a better top 50 list at the dissolve and we need no more people getting hit by cars in movies. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, listen to uh, a, a, a fantastic song. <laughs> uh, this is, of course, Berlin with Take My Breath Away.
really wanted to play the the cover version of that by uh, I think Sandy Lamb uh, that Wong Kar Wai uses in As Tears Go By, but I couldn't use the cover version because the whole point is that the band is named the band Berlin. Is Berlin. Yeah. yeah. So maybe on a future George Sanders show we will hear the cover of Take My Breath Away. We'll just do like six versions of it. Yeah, uh, but not not next time. On our next show will be our Oscar preview show. Yay! The Academy right. Awards will be February 22nd. And uh, if all goes well, the show will be out before then. We will make our picks for who should win. Uh, we will pick our favorite films of 2014 by the actual correct dating. It's uh, another thing to complain about. Yeah, film dating system that we use. And we're going to talk about two of the... Uh, <gasps> Two of the Best Picture nominees of 1965, uh, both of which happen to star Julie Christie, and she's pretty. <laughs> Dr. Zhivago uh, by David Lean and Darlene from John Schlesinger. That's right. Just a couple of horn dogs here on the George Sanders show. We, we just like it for the pretty women. That's it. Yep. Um, if you are in Seattle um, on Valentine's Day, at Scarecrow Video, for free, there's going to be a George Sanders show party. Mm. And I, I donated to their Kickstarter, get them up on their feet as a nonprofit. And as a uh, reward, I got to um, plan something for their, their screening room there that they have. Um, and so we will be screening, and everybody's welcome, so, and it's free. We are going to be screening the 1973 film Lady Snowblood, uh, and it's going to be a bloody, bloody Valentine's Day. So please come on out if you can. I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, I haven't seen that movie in, I don't know, almost a decade, but uh, it's awesome. I've never seen it. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it's, you, uh, you have seen you have seen it, Sean. It's uh, you, but you saw it under its American title, which is uh, Kill Bill Volume One and Two. Well, you know, if if you were a big uh, movie theater running like a martial arts film series, and one of the movies you wanted to play was Kill Bill Volume One and Two, wouldn't it make sense to play something that was such a an obvious forebearer to that film, like say Lady Snowblood? Yep. Well, you know, it's not Cinerama, but Scarecrow's always there for us to you know fill in those gaps. So. Check right. it out. Uh, my pick for this week is at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It is a series that is going on right now on John Carpenter. And it uh, is pretty fantastic. Uh, playing there today is Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which I haven't seen, but uh, I kind of want to. It's a notorious flop. But coming up in the next few days are uh, Prince of Darkness, which is great. A Dark Star, which is great. Big Trouble in Little China, also great. And uh, on Sunday, also it's on Precinct 13, also great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, John Carpenter is is the best, and they're doing this fantastic retrospective, and you should go and see them if you are in the Brooklyn area. Do it. Uh, you can find us online at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We have an email account, thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at geosandershow. And as we mentioned last week, uh, we are putting a lot of energy into this new website called seattlescreenscene.com. So if you want more writings from us on different movies that we don't talk about on this show, uh, for example, my review of uh, the real kinky Valentine's Day movie, R100, uh, which will be premiering uh, next week, 
is uh, available now. So, you know, if, you, if you're interested in that stuff, check us out there as well. And, and my Sleepless in Seattle review is there too, which is about as kinky as my Valentine's Day gets. So, <laughs> You're a freak, Sean, mm-hmm. a super freak. That's right. Uh, without further ado, we're going to take a break from this chitter-chattering for another week or two, and we're going to listen to George Sanders, the man, the myth, the legend. Take my breath away, George. Mm. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world Always welcome lovers as time goes by. Oh man, how great would a George Sanders version of Take My Breath Away be? I it would be almost as good as a uh, motorhead soundtracked version of Alphaville. Mm. I think it would break music. That's right. Music would re- music would retire. Yep, it's done. Yep. <laughs> All right.